This is Gliza for Classical Adventures for One, where I read classical work dramatically and discuss things about that work that I find interesting and want to share with my listeners. If that's something that you're into, stick around and let's talk about fictional books of the past. Today's chapter reading brings us back to the royal Hart family and a trial where the knave of hearts is being accused of stealing tarts. Which is funny because after announcing that whole thing, the questions that were asked were not even related to the tarts being stolen. But of course, what can we really expect with such an illogical world such as Wonderland? Thanks for listening to me read that, by the way. But if you haven't, the link for it is down below, so hop onto it if you want to listen. The art pieces that I'm presenting today is done by the super talented Snow. They are amazing and honestly, it has that misty sort of dreamy effect that I just love so very much. It's definitely fitting for the Alice world as well as the Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland's discussion that we would be having today. If you're interested in their work, feel free in checking out the link below to go to their deviant art. They make really good cover art for podcasts, albums, and other things. You won't regret checking their stuff out. Tim Burton, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I knew I loved you when I first watched Edward Scissorhands. It was just so beautiful and I loved the visual of your movies. Then I watched Mars Attack and dear Lord, that movie has been living rent-free in my mind for many, many, many years now and definitely not in a good way. That movie terrified me and I would never watch that movie ever again. It probably didn't help that I was really young when I first saw it, and there were some floating heads going around. There will still be some nights where I would have nightmares, and I've only watched that movie once in my entire life. Then there was Big Fish. How gorgeous was Big Fish? If I didn't know that I had a crush on Ewan McGregor, I fully knew it by then. The world that Edward Bloom built for his son was beautiful and amazing, And it was such a wonderful world to witness. I watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and The Corpse Bride soon after. And though I didn't enjoy Charlie as much as I thought I would, I forgave it because I really enjoyed The Corpse Bride. Then Sweeney Todd happened and man, maybe it's my love for musicals, but that was such a really good movie, wasn't it? But enough of this. Why am I talking about Tim Burton and the many movies that I enjoyed by him? and those that I didn't enjoy as much. Well, today we will be talking about Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass as heavily influenced by Tim Burton. Now, Tim Burton did not direct Alice Through the Looking Glass, but he did produce it. Was he the best choice for these movies? Honestly, probably is my answer to that. His movies always have that weird absurdity that embodied Alice's adventures in Wonderland as well as Through the Looking Glass. 
So yeah, it makes sense that he was the one that they had chosen for this. Now, before I tell you more about my feelings about these two movies, I want to delve a little bit in the history and background in how these two movies came about. Alice in Wonderland is the 2010 live action with a mix of animation as only Tim Burton can do. The film stars Johnny Depp, Anne Hathaway, Helena Bonham Carter, Crispin Glover, Matt Lucas, Mia Wasikowska, with the wonderful voices of Alan Rickman, Stephen Fry, Michael Sheen, and Timothy Spall. The movie itself is very loosely inspired by the Wonderland books by Charles Ludwig Dodson, better known as Lewis Carroll, as well as drawing inspiration from Walt Disney's Alice in Wonderland. And by loosely, I mean very loosely. The story of the movie actually works better as a sequel rather than an actual reimagining of the books, even though Tim never really considered it as a sequel. The basic synopsis being that it tells the story of Alice Kingsley, who travels to Underland as the champion of the White Queen. The White Queen's throne was stolen by the Red Queen with the help of the Jabberwocky, a dragon-like creature that only the Red Queen could control. Alice, with the help of several Underland residents, would end the Jabberwocky's life and free the same people from the Red Queen's tyranny. It had a lot of elements from both Alice books with a lot of inspiration taken from Through the Looking Glass. Tim Burton once said that he had developed the story in such a way because he never really felt an emotional tie to the other movie versions of Alice. It was always a girl wandering from one crazy character to another, said Tim, and he wanted this story of Alice to feel more like a story as opposed to a series of events. His main goal, according to him, was to take the randomness of the books taking elements of the book and making it its own stories. This was also the first time Tim had ever shot in green screen and no stop motion capture. This movie was strictly a combination of live action and animation. As for Alice Through the Looking Glass, it pretty much eschewed the book completely. It was basically a completely different story altogether from anything that the books had ever come up with. The synopsis of that second movie is Alice discovers a magical looking glass that takes her back to Underland only to find her good friend, the Mad Hatter, pretty much losing his mind, or whatever's left of it. This was due to his desire to prove that his family aren't actually dead. Alice chose to go against the personification of time, steals a time-traveling device, wreaks havoc as only Alice can, all in the attempt to save the Mad Hatter before time runs out. This time, Alice Through the Looking Glass was not directed by Tim Burton. He only produced it, and it was directed by James Robin. This is a story that no longer recognizes Charles' world and is very loosely, loosely based on the Wonderland world that we know and love. Now, it's time for my very biased opinion, and I'm going to divide it in two parts, the bad and the good. As Charles Boyle from Brooklyn Nine-Nine once said that his nana always said, Bad news first because the good news is probably a lie. Having said that, I did genuinely have a lot of good things to talk about in regards to the movies, but I kind of want to get the bad out of the way first. The bad things about it. I didn't know that it would work best as a sequel, and I came into these movies expecting a retelling, and I was very frustrated when I didn't get it. If I had watched it thinking of it as a sequel in my mind, then I would probably be a lot more open-minded. Maybe that's why I was a lot more forgiving of the second movie than I was with the first. I definitely did not enjoy how dark Wonderland has become. 
as I continue to mention, I'm not a fan of the terrifying. And because of this, I really do not enjoy it when there's a retelling of an innocent and wonderful children's story and it becomes twisted for a more adult audience. Are adults really dark and twisted now? Must we discard the innocence and fantastical world that children enjoy because we're adults? And that's where I'm at when it comes to these kinds of things. Wonderland is not dark. I've always seen it as this beautiful and bright land. I'm also not a fan of the evil Red Queen, and yet movies after movies have always presented her to be as such. Dark and evil, and yet she's not. She was the first person to be really friendly to Alice in the story, even if she kept announcing that she would behead her. I'm a Red Queen stan, and apparently this is a hill I will die on. So I didn't appreciate how evil they made her out to be. Though they did sort of fix that in the second movie, I suppose. It seems that Madison Herbert in Literature Uncovered is right in saying that here appears to be an inverse relationship between Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland due to the overwhelming differences. The more you like the Alice books, the more you're probably going to dislike Burton's film adaptations. What did I need to do to really enjoy this film? Well, I needed to forget how much I enjoyed the books and watch the movies for what they were. Just movies that took names and worlds but definitely not the spirit of it, and it definitely helped me enjoy it. The voice actors were definitely terrific. Alan Rickman, Michael Sheen, Stephen Fry, and Christopher Lee, all wonderful actors and hearing their voice come out of some of my favorite characters was just pure perfection. They were all so perfect in these roles and it really does make me sad that we're never going to see Alan Rickman again in any more new roles. Now, the actors themselves are amazing. They were well acted and you can't really blame them for a weird script. They really put their best into their roles, but I'm also easily impressed. So take that view with a hint of salt. Once I stopped caring about how these movies are not at all like the books, I really did start to enjoy myself. The relationship between the queens was nice at the end, and the personification of time played by Sasha Baron Cohen was just fun. The characters have more depth to them, with Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter subtly switching from lighthearted jokes to blinding rage. The Dormouse is no longer just sleeping in a teapot, but she becomes Malamcum a feasty mouse general. One of the things that I did enjoy while watching the movie was finding all the little Easter eggs that I could find. I loved all the little references and the little lines that I only caught because I've read the book multiple times. I want to thank my husband for watching this with me during his nights off and for being patient as I paused the movie and kept telling him which line was from the book and which scene was a reference to the book. He was very patient with me as I explained each moment of it. It was like my own little version of Where's Waldo. Finally, as much as I complained about the darkness of the world, it was still such a beautiful visual treat to watch. It was gorgeous, much like a lot of Tim Burton's world. As Edwin J says, Tim uses plenty of dark colors which are brilliant in contrast to the light. Pastels against a dark world creates a contrast that Tim Burton is known for. Would I watch it again? I'm going to be honest with you, probably not. I just can't watch that Futter walk-in at the end ever again. But it's definitely not as bad as I thought it would be. It was not as good as I hoped it would be, but definitely not as bad as I feared it would be. After all, with a book that has spanned a century, 
people are allowed to reinvent it for the modern world, right? My sources for this chapter are linked below. And hey guys, this is my second to the last episode for the first season. I can't believe I'm almost at the end of this journey. It's been spectacular so far and I thank you guys for joining me. Definitely thank you guys for joining me on this adventure. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please remember to subscribe, like, and share if you found this episode interesting. I would love to hear from you, so please leave a comment below if you have anything that you want me to know or tips to improve on. If you're listening to it anywhere else, please subscribe, like, and share it to people you think might like it anyway. And you can also email me at classicalgliza at gmail.com. Again, I'm Gliza, and this has been Classical Adventures for One. See you on the next adventure. <laughs>